Really glad you're here with us this morning and really glad to be worshiping with you here today. Um, if you have your Bible with you, open with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. We've been walking through Peter's letter to the church in Asia Minor as they have been suffering at the hands of people who are persecuting them for their faith, either on a macro level and also on a micro level relationally. And so we're coming here celebrating God's word um, so that we might hear um, an encouragement and uh, rebuke if need be so that we can live um, more, enjoying God more fully throughout our days. Um, when I was 14 years old, my uh, parents found a new doctor for our family. Um, I had uh, allergic asthma growing up um, and it was one of those things where I would get sinus infections a lot, and if you haven't read my testimony yet, I started rebelling when I was 14, 15 years old, so I was a smart kid who would smoke cigarettes and have asthma, um, and so oddly enough, I would get sick quite frequently and uh, get lung you know, infections, bronchitis, everything else, and so we went to this new doctor, and instead of giving these new uh, uh, inventions called pills, he liked to give old-school penicillin shots. Um, if you've never had an old-school penicillin shot, um, they don't feel nice. Um, they're actually quite thick. It feels almost like they're taking um, jello or pudding and shooting it in your hind parts. And it hurts a lot. It's very discomforting. And quite honestly, there's not an immediate relief. But in a day or two, all of a sudden, the relief starts kicking in and it actually works. For those who are being persecuted or those in the midst of suffering who are newer to the faith, the book of First Peter is like that penicillin shot. It can be painful, it can be discomforting, it may not feel like it's providing the healing balm that we need, instead it might feel almost like a correction because we may not see the purpose that God has for us in our suffering and pain immediately. But the hope of it is, is that God in his faithfulness is using all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, that even through our pain and even through our disappointments and even through persecution, we might be able to more clearly see and enjoy and obey God. And that's my hope for us this morning as we turn a corner in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3 talks about submitting to authorities, and it goes even more specifically, 1 Peter 2 and 1 Peter 3 talks about submitting to authorities and then wives and husbands having unique um, God-glorifying relationship structure, and then talking through how we pursue the righteousness of Christ in and through our persecution and suffering. Today we're going to look how, okay, then how then shall we be and how then shall we live in the midst of the suffering and persecution? And the main point I want us to take away from this passage is that the will of God is for followers of Jesus to have the mind and attitude of Christ. That the will of God is for followers of Jesus to have the mind and attitude of Christ, even as we face persecution, even as we face suffering, and I thought for a while as I was reading through this and studying that mind and attitude, well, aren't they the same thing? And so I did something that many people do these days. I asked the oracle called Google um, exactly what's the difference between mind and attitude. And then I started doing some deeper study in the Greek words. And essentially, the mind has to deal with the thoughts, our knowledge, our, the way we understand the attitude has more to do with our posture and our appropriate positioning, our submission ultimately to God. And that's the point of the idea of submission in general, is it's ultimately a submission to the authority of God. And so as we pick up this, this thread, as we continue in 1 Peter 4, I want us to keep that in mind that God's will for us as followers of Jesus in the midst of our suffering or persecution through our life is that it might refine us. The, the churchy word is sanctify. That means to be made more and more 
holy, separated for God, that we might become more like Jesus, to be conformed, as the Bible says, into his image. And if you think that's always a feel-good, warm, fuzzy experience, soon enough, my prayer is that reality will teach you differently. Because some of us, we learn better through pain. Some of us learn better through joy. Some of us learn better through sorrow. But as a community, as a body of Christ, all of these seasons are necessary that we might mature and grow in our faith. So pick up with me, if you will, in 1 Peter chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So the first thing we'll unpack here is that suffering helps us to understand and identify with Jesus. Suffering helps us to understand and identify with Jesus. He says, since therefore, because of the sufferings of Christ, because he had lived a perfect life, honoring God, obeying his commands, doing what God has called him to do, even when it wasn't popular or easy, Yet he was persecuted, he had suffered, he had been abandoned, even though these things were occurring in this life, in this flesh. And remember, Peter had cast vision that this life, while meaningful, is temporary, that we are aliens and strangers, that we are sojourners and wanderers, that this ultimately is not our home. And so the life in the flesh, this life in our body, while we might endure pain and suffering like Jesus had, that it didn't have the final say, that our pain, our persecution, the rejection, the suffering does not have the final say. But it's interesting, he says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Arming yourself is very much a military wartime way of thinking. It's not saying, hey, passively, you know, maybe wear a jacket because it's chilly out. It's saying, pack your gun and your ammunition because the battle is here. The battle is coming. And so he's saying it's a different way of thinking. It's a different way of living. It's a a new lens to wear in how we engage in this life, seeking to enjoy God, obey him in his teachings, and to live a life that is righteous because Christ is our righteousness. Arm yourself with this. Prepare yourself with this. Put this thing on. What is he saying to arm yourself with this same way of thinking? I think a lot of times we spend our time focusing on discipleship as being learning the behaviors of Christ. But as we study the scriptures and we understand the Bible, we begin to understand the way of Christ. And if you want to see what formed the thinking of Christ, you begin then to understand the importance of what we call the Old Testament. The Jewish people call it the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh. But the Old Testament then is important because it informs us as to the lens by which Jesus was seeing the prophecy of Messiah, the fulfillment of Messiah, the way of living. I tell a lot of people that I mentor and disciple, and I've shared this with the church, If you want to grow in a way of thinking more like the Lord, grow in the memorization and learning of the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs, as I like to tongue-in-cheek call it, and y'all don't laugh that much because it must not be that funny. It's kind of like one of those later you're thinking about it like, (laughs) uh, okay, Um, I call it the Hebrew fortune cookie, but it's just that idea of like just nugget sayings and learning 
of finding a, a chapter a day. And so today was Proverbs 5, and I read Proverbs 5 this morning during my devotion time of running and fleeing from the ways of an adulteress. And, and, and instead of living, as Proverbs 4 talks about, the way of wisdom, and 3 talks about the way of wisdom. It gives us a way of thinking so that as we approach Scripture, we don't do a full backwards view of Scripture from the New Testament only into the Old Testament, but rather we go through the Old Testament and the traditions of the Old Testament and understanding the Passover so that when we see Jesus ultimately being the ultimate Passover, we have joy and deeper appreciation. And it's not that the New Testament does not interpret the Old Testament, but if we understand the ways and thinkings of Christ, he was a fully Jewish and Hebrew man. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. I don't know about you. This passage forces me to be tempted to what theologians like to call isogesis. Big word. Exegesis means to draw from the text. Isogesis means, means to put into the text. I want to take my experience and let that interpret the scriptures. That's my first thing. So I see this, and I think of my life like from 6 a.m. this morning to now, and I say, well, I have not ceased from sin, or at least the temptation to sin. It's this ongoing battle. So as Peter's saying, if you're really in Christ, that you do not any longer have sin, well, in the larger scope of 1 Peter and the greater scope of the Scriptures, it doesn't seem to teach that before we're with Christ, we live without sin. Yet, But it does do a paradigm shift in our relation to sin. There is a paradigm shift for those who are in Christ. And as we share with His suffering, it allows us to live for the rest of time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This idea of suffering for the sake of Christ, I, I don't know about you, but when I face hard seasons or things that happen in our lives, sometimes caused by us, other times caused by others, other times because of situations out of our control, it does expose a lot in me. It exposes faith and it exposes sin. And in those times of suffering and struggle, if we begin to see them not as God's punishment, because Christ bore the punishment, but rather Christ's invitation to more of him and to grow in righteousness, to understand, we begin to see that through our suffering and our struggles, we are able then to identify pockets of sin, areas of immaturity that Jesus is inviting us to more of him. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And the Gentiles here he's referring to at this point are not just merely uh, non-Jewish Christians, but he's referring to now a delineation between Jewish and non-Jewish Christians and those who still live outside of Christ, outside of the Jewish origin. So he's saying believers, non-believers. For that time, for, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, and they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
So the death then to obeying our sinful passions invites us then to leave behind the ways that we used to live, the patterns we used to partake in. Now, for those of you who've grown up in the church and by and large, by God's mercy and his profound grace, have lived a life walking within the culture of Christianity, it may be a little more difficult for you to appreciate the cost and the loss associated when people trust Christ and turn from their sin. There is a cost involved. The benefit far outweighs that cost, but the cost is significant. With respect to this, they're surprised. It's interesting. It says they're surprised. They're shocked. They don't understand. It's disorienting. Why would you no longer live this way? Why wouldn't you go to our parties and be with people outside of marriage and do all these different things? That makes no sense to people who have not known Christ who don't know the depth of his sacrifice, the depth of the power of his resurrection, the feeling of his spirit, the guidance of his love. I remember when I was 17 and I came to faith. It was a lonely season because many of the friends I used to go out and party with and do things with that were sin, I stopped doing. And I remember I would sit at home as a senior in high school playing the three chords on the guitar that I knew. Turns out you can play most worship songs. No offense, Gatlin. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not picking on you. But it was, it was lonely, and as an extrovert, it was isolating. It was difficult. But I can look back now and say, but it was, it was still worth it. It was costly. It was lonely. But it was worth it. Some of us in the church who are followers of Jesus are wanting to live both ways. And I'm not one to say that we are saved by our works. We are not. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But as that faith takes root, there ought to be a declining valuation of sin. Let me put it this way. And it says a different word, but as we grow in our relationship number two, go ahead and put it up there. So there I said, when we grow, I think the word as, I don't know if you know this, I, I have very select OCD, many things I just ignore, but like when I'm putting words together, it may not seem like it when you read it, you're like, that's the worst form sentence I've ever seen in my entire life. But really, I, I think it's better said as we grow, not just when, but as we're growing, as we're maturing, as we're pursuing faith in Christ, as we grow in our relationship with Jesus, sin becomes less appealing. It doesn't taste as sweet. It becomes more empty. And I've seen it in my own life, I've seen it in many of your lives, that as you start pursuing Christ and as you begin to treasure Him and know Him, sin is less satisfying. And as we mature in faith, there's a shorter timeline between when we sin and when we realign and reorient, or as the Bible teaches, repent, change our thinking, change our direction. We're less satisfied. We're more able to identify. When those of us who have quick tempers, we're quicker to either catch it or repent of it sooner. Those of us who like to go for a third piece of cheesecake, we catch ourselves halfway through the second. For those of us who look at things that are inappropriate on the phone or the computer, as we're typing in, we re repent. And we step into the light. 
as those of us who are materialistic, as we're doing that super easy thing by now on Amazon, but it's prime specials. It doesn't do what it used to do. And sometimes sin still feels good. And if we have a short view of the value of Christ, and we forget, I forget, you forget, that's why we gather together on a weekly basis, gathering on Sunday, gathering throughout the week, it's because we forget. We forget. But as we come back and reorient around it, and as we mature in faith of Jesus, sin becomes less appealing. I have sat with people back when I was a student minister and as a pastor here and as a pastor in other churches who have walked away from unhealthy dating relationships and grieved that loss from people who went through the pains of coming off substance abuse with people who went fully digital and got a flip phone that could only text because of things they were looking at. I mean, I've seen people fight to put sin to death. And short term, it's difficult. But to be honest, I've never talked to anyone who says, my life is worse now without that sin. My life is worse now because I have more of Jesus. Now, Jesus gives warning to people like the Pharisees saying, you might sweep out and the demons might go away, but if you sweep it out and clean it up, but nothing else comes to fill it, namely the Spirit of God, then something else worse will come. Addiction's hard. It's difficult to overcome. But if you handle that by pulling up your bootstrap or pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, sorry, I don't wear boots. Your loafers? I don't know. And you do it all yourself and you get that away, the pride that creeps in by your ability to do that on your own can be even more corrupting. And so as we think through this understanding of pursuing Christ, there's times there's freeing liberation that immediately evokes joy, and there's other times where it's like slowly getting rid of the toxic poison that sin corrupts and destroys. For there is an enemy, Jesus says, who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus came to give life and to give it to us in abundance. And abundance more than wealth and health is liberty and freedom in Him. Freedom to love, freedom to serve, freedom to give, freedom to evangelize, freedom to forgive. This last verse is one that, again, we might be tempted to just omit. It says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So, this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. I, I read that and I was like, huh? And so I read commentaries. If you think Facebook arguing is bad, if you think like, I want you to get some differing view commentaries and then stay off the blogs because your soul will go like, oh, I'm a grape, now I'm a raisin, like that, okay? Because of the way people are so uncharitable with each other. Um, if, if you take this idea in context of all of 1 Peter and look broader to the New Testament, I think there's two primary ways to view it. One is that 
the gospel promises eternal life, and the cynics of the gospel during that time would point to the fact that Christians die. And so one of the contextual critiques of the time is that Christians that live during that time, they could be put to death. They could be martyred. They could be killed. And so like, hey, what happened to living forever? So that could bring some understanding for this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, to those who are non-believers who became believers, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So that may be what Peter is referring to. But I, I think it's also important and I'm not trying to be snarky, but I think we miss context when we only quote John 3.16. If you want to look with me at John 3.16 through 18, it brings kind of a bigger understanding of that. Now, hear me. I believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, or begotten, for King Jamesers, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I believe whoever. If anyone would believe in Jesus, they won't perish. The part of quibbling there comes over how does one come to believe, which is a topic for a different day. However, it goes on. But for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Verse 18, not as warm and fuzzy. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. They're dead already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Jesus Christ came preaching to the spiritually dead. He didn't come preaching to the spiritual deserving. The Pharisees, though they had the religious activities and behaviors and knowledge down pat, they did not live in such a way that expressed or professed a faith in a living and active God. Rather, they lived and behaved in such a way that they believed that God owed them something. And what John 3.18 says is that whoever believes in him, they're not condemned. They're believing in Christ removes condemnation. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. They don't become condemned once Jesus comes. Their sin has already condemned them. And the Bible says in uh, Romans 3.23 for the wages, excuse me, Romans 6.23 for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of life, eternal life, is, uh, is, sorry, for the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of life, uh, I can't even remember. Someone knows it. What is it? Free gift of God. Good night. Free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin leads to death. Mine, yours, everyone's. And so when we share the gospel with people, we're not sharing the gospel to condemn them. We share the gospel because they're already standing condemned before God, as we were. And if it wasn't for the grace of God to bring the proclamation and explanation of the gospel of Jesus, we would be helpless and hopeless. And so the bringing of the gospel to those who are dead in sin is not condemning. It's an act of love that is liberating from impending and ongoing current condemnation that is being realized now and fulfilled in eternity. And so we have to understand when Peter's giving them statements of living under hope of persecution and proclamation and living in such a ways that doesn't do the things that other people do, he's doing so not just because we want to... uh, 
feel better about ourselves, but he's saying the short cost of your faith in Christ now in the flesh, isolation, loss of relationships, loss of money, loss of status, loss of health, loss of life because of Christ, it's worth it. I don't know about you, I forget that. I need others to remind me of that. I need the word of God to remind me and convict and bring clarity and to remove the blinders of sin. To live in such a way that you don't join them in the flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they give you account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There are parties that people go to and places that people go to specifically to get drunk or high. The point of that is a collective participation to get inebriated and altered. There are other gatherings where people get together to celebrate the blessings of God, the fruit of the vine, food, everything else, and they do so not as an aim of getting altered, but as the aim of cultivating relationship. And so for some of you who come out of a lifestyle of addiction or anything else, there's a different way you approach that that's going to be isolating because you're no longer participating in the things that your community is participating in. You no longer are. And even for us as believers, there's certain parties or things I go to where I will be the dork with the water bottle because the aim is different. I'm going to be there to commune in relationship, not to judge, but to live differently. Oh man, why can't you have more than water? Blah, blah, blah. You ever been in a situation like that? And it could be more severe. The freedom that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 9 is a freedom to partake and a freedom to abstain. The liberty that we have in Christ. The liberty of Christ isn't merely to act, but it's also to withhold. That's something for us young Christians, it's difficult to remember. And I'm not just saying with alcohol or with food or with consumption of goods. I'm, not, I'm just saying that there's an organic and growing wisdom as we grow in knowledge of God that our grace that we receive and the grace that we then are able to extend is unique and helpful. Because as we grow in our relationship with Jesus, sin becomes less appealing. And we have to remember that when we, I mean, I've been a believer by God's grace over 20 years. And so the sting of the isolation and alienation is, is faded pretty substantially. But for those who are in the church who are pretty new to the faith and are living different lives, it could be a hard and difficult and lonely season. And that's why a biblical community that's open to discipleship, as we are here, we exist to glorify God by making followers of Jesus Christ who are growing and multiplying. We see this taking form by really striving to make disciples in authentic community. And so as we pursue this and as we do this and as we long for this, our hope is found in not our abilities, and not even through our own suffering, but by focusing on the suffering of Christ that refines us, that stretches us, that grows us. And as we grow in our relationship with Jesus, sin becomes less appealing. And he goes on and kind of brings the why and what. The end of all things is at hand, therefore. Because the end is at hand. Now, 
This isn't advice for us to go figure out exactly when Jesus is returning, to write books to that end. I mean, anytime you have like an earthquake quake or a war in the Middle East, new books are striving and coming out of why things exactly are going to end on certain dates because of certain things. So there's a blood moon coming or a certain type of solar eclipse or whatever. And people are constantly living with the end in mind so much so that they're selling everything, building bunkers down on the ground, getting food and water. Listen, if God wants to end things, you're done. I'm not saying don't be wise, and I'm not critiquing you for your 50 guns. I don't know how many arms you have, but whatever. What I am saying, though, is we, can't, we can live with the end in mind, knowing that there's a, there's a prize and a reward and a hope, but we also engage today not living afraid. We don't live in fear and hunker down and separate from the, the, the community around us. We engage because of the hope we have in the gospel. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Self-controlled and sober-minded. That's opposite of freaking out. When wars happen, when tragedies happen, it means that we stay steady and faithful and we remind each other of our future hope. It doesn't mean that we don't grieve. It doesn't mean that we don't experience fear, but that it's balanced through self-control and sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. Interesting. Constant self-medicating and hypocrisy are two things that can greatly hinder our prayers. Self-medicating, especially to a sinful level, and hypocrisy, having one expectation of others but not holding yourself to the same standard, can hinder prayers. It won't help you to pray rightly. It won't help you to hope in God. It will realign that for you. It says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, above all things, here's what we do. Here's how we live. More than hunkering down and storing, more than looking out and pointing out what's wrong, more than going out and critiquing the world who is already condemned, rather than doing those things, instead, what should we be for? Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. That means you fall forward and you fight for each other and you work together. Why? Because since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The choices we make and the attitudes we hold expose the level of our Christian maturity. The, at, the choices we make and the attitudes we hold expose the level of our Christian maturity. It should be on the screen. The choices we make and the attitudes we hold expose the level of our Christian maturity. The sake of our prayers begins with a humble reliance on God's faithfulness, not our own. It comes with a confession of saying, God, search me, know me. It's allowing the Lord to be righteous and, and that be our goal. We've got more growing up to do, church, myself included. I'm not there yet. By God's grace, I'm more mature than I was a decade ago, and I'm extremely hopeful by God's grace that I'll be more mature in 10 more years. But I shared this at a camp a few weeks ago. It's a stat I've shared with you. It haunts me personally. George Barna found that most people by the age of 13 
have come to know all they think they need to know about God. And the reason is because they're taught by people who at the age of 13 drew the same conclusion. And so if you meet a 65-year-old believer who's acting childish in faith, they're still in maturity. Chronology does not equate to maturity. It can, especially if a person learns from life experience, but that doesn't automatically equate to spiritual maturity. It doesn't negate it, but there's not a direct year-for-year gauge. Life in community with people in an ongoing way exposes more areas of our sin and immaturity. Amen? Well, let me try that again. Amen? Amen. Yeah. See, a lot of times when it's just starting to really come out and be drawn out, we're like, I'm, it's, emba- it's embarrassing. And so Peter doesn't say a better form of discipline, a better sort of punishment, a better type of Retribution is the solution. No, he says, above all, keep loving one another. Keep after it, ongoing. Don't give up. Don't stop. Earnestly. If Jesus went to die for the disciples right after Peter says, you're the Christ, in Mark chapter 8, then I could understand why We're all tempted to run when crisis happens, when things aren't going our way. Because he didn't die for his disciples right. He told them right then in Mark 8 what would happen. But it wasn't when his disciples were most on board. It was when they had all split and two had betrayed him. That he looks out not only his disciples, but the people who were beating him. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I hit on this last week. It's in the midst of that that he continued to love earnestly. If you want to see earnest love, look to Christ on the cross. If you want to see earnest love, look at Christ restoring Peter after the resurrection. If you want to see earnest love, look at the promises and commission that Christ gave his disciples before he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father to send his spirit to empower and inform us and help us. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. There's a commentary that was really helpful on this about Peter's definition of love, and so I am going to use this commentary to help you. It says, Peter's definition of love is not a warm, fuzzy feeling. He says, love covers a multitude of sins, means that we don't go around looking for faults in others, that we do go around seeking to think the best of others, and that we don't spend our time lingering over past flaws of others. We always stand ready to forgive one another. After all, the end is near, and we are going to live with our brothers and sisters for eternity. My wife has a very strong sense of right and wrong. Things are right, things are wrong. I am wired differently. I grew up with an attorney in my home. My dad's a lawyer. What's one of the phrases, Brent, that they say, attorneys say? Well, it depends. You ever heard that before, counselor? Dad, what do you do, blah, blah, blah? Is this right or wrong? Well, it depends. On what? Well, there's many factors, actually, to weigh it in, blah, 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 blah. Afterwards, you're leaving like, that's as clear as mud. So you leave just trying to do your best by your gut. The one thing that Stephanie has, over the years, been a great benefit for our marriage is she refuses to let us go on in unforgiveness with each other or of other people. She's a redhead, she gets heated, she gets angry, 
but she refuses not to forgive. She says, we've been so forgiven, shouldn't we also forgive others? And forgiveness doesn't mean immediate rebuilding of trust. That takes time. It takes effort. But what it does mean is we're going to release you and hope for you because in the same way, we've been forgiven much. And so this providential timeline of this passage helps us to understand that above all things, we keep loving each other. We fall forward. We fight for the right and good of each other. We seek to understand. We show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hey, guys, look, I know you love Jesus. One of the hardest things there is to do in this church is host a community group. Amen? Mm-hmm. Yes. Everybody here has bajillion kids. Amen? That's awesome. 39% of our church is fifth grade and younger. That's a lot. We've got pregnant ladies. We've got people having babies like crazy. Even those of you with larger homes, it's like, it's like a tornado on a weekly basis comes into your house. And things happen. And there's times to take breaks. I'm not, I'm, I'm not down on that, but this is what he's talking about. Maybe that community group that, that week doesn't have much to offer you, but it may be a safe place where someone else can come and be reminded of God's grace because their week has been trash. And we're welcoming and we're inviting and we're sacrificial and we're doing it because we want to create an environment for people to be discipled in authentic community. That's why we sacrifice on Sunday mornings and that's why we have people in our homes. It, it baffles my mind when our house is not that dirty and Stephanie's like, it's the right thing to do to clean our house before people come over. Anyone else think that you've got to clean your house before people come over, like to make it look purpose? No, raise your hand. Like it, it's, got to, it's got to look like no one's lived there. It's like a model home that no one has lived in in five years. Like all of a sudden it's like things have been going crazy. The kids are like making messes, everything else. You're like scattering them up, doing what you don't do. Well, they can watch a movie on a weekday, right? You don't, you're, you're like getting them in there. Hey, play an iPad kid so you can clean it, keep it clean until it's time for people to come over. And it's like, oh, we live like this. And if you all do, we need to teach a class on that. But it's also awesome when you go to people's house, especially when they're crisis and it's a little bit messy, it's like it's more comforting. You know, it's like, oh, I mean, you got to be thoughtful. Like, don't be nasty. But, you know, it's like, hey, you, you, people live here. We do life together. We invite people over when our house isn't perfect. And it's always the irony of, like, if you have a housekeeper, you clean before they come. Right? You clean before the maid, and you clean before people come with their eight kids, and they thrash everything. Like, hey, let's take what our kids thrashed, make it look like they haven't lived here. Let everyone thrash it again and clean again for Jesus. You're laughing, right? Because that's what we do. And I'm not saying, like, keep it a wreck, but one, lighten up. That's my encouragement to us all. And number two, it's like we do that out of love. We do that being reminded that we want to create a consistent environment where people know they can be safe, to talk about the Lord, to struggle together, to receive prayer and encouragement, and be challenged in all that. The hospitality of the church to one another, especially, here's the deal, I am so glad by God's grace there has not been a hurricane again this year. But I will say that the way that you guys united together during Hurricane Harvey where it wasn't so much like, well, I don't know if I have time for that, whatever. It's like whatever it takes, whatever we need. I mean, Gatlin still has like four shop vacs at his house for next time, right, in his garage. It's whatever happened, whatever, whatever needed to happen, we bound together in love to show hospitality to those who are suffering. In wartime living, arming ourselves with the same mind of Christ is like, hey, 
Persecution is coming. It has come. Suffering happens. How do we then build trust and relationships so as it happens and as it comes, there's a safe and soft place for people to land? Showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. I'm not always great at that. Especially when you have to clean before it gets destroyed. When I remember why, it helps. He goes on and says in 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, and we'll land the plane. As each has received a gift, which each of you who are followers of Christ have been granted at least a spiritual gift or talent or use for the kingdom. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. If you're not just like me, praise God. If you're not just like him or her, praise God. Christians, pastors, ministers, People were horrible at comparing each other and comparing ourselves to other people. The comparison we ought to be making is to the person of Christ. It's a way that we have been gifted and and called and wired, conforming more to his image or not. And if it's not, then there needs to be correction and realignment. God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one, speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Number four is this. Serving is not only a good thing, it is a God thing. Serving is not only a good thing, it is a God thing. Now, you might be thinking, well, you're a mobile church. It's super helpful for you to leverage the scriptures to that. No, even if we weren't, we would come up with new things for you to sacrifice and serve. Because that's the way of our master. That is the way of our king. Those who speak, and so he breaks it down, two primary ways of speaking. Those who speak the oracles of God, the truth of God, his word, and those who serves. Those who speak, those who preach, those who teach, those who lead community groups, those who minister to our children, those who lead our students, those who disciple one another across from the table, those who study the Bible together, those who speak as one who speaks with meaning and purpose. So when we're counseling and encouraging each other, we're not just stealing from Oprah Winfrey, saying whatever makes you most happy, you go do, but we say, hey, maybe this is an opportunity for Jesus inviting you to come and have more of him. Maybe through this suffering, he might be helping you to understand more of who he is. That he isn't a God who is far off that doesn't relate, but he's a God who understands more than anyone else. And then those who serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Something we implemented a few months ago is we had the road crew as they get together to serve to stop and pray. Not to Jesus juke you guys and ladies, but to give you the hope and realignment of why we're doing this. We're doing this because we believe God has a purpose for it and that he has equipped us and that he will strengthen us and he will encourage us along the way. We serve so that we can create an environment for people to encounter Jesus for the first time. We create an environment for people who are hurting from other churches, people who are downtrodden because of life, people who have been disoriented by tragedy and trauma to be able to come and be safe and be served and to hear and feel and experience the gospel. That's why we serve. That's why we set up and we tear down. And I want to say, those of you who have been faithfully serving on Sunday mornings and throughout the week, 
Thank you. And I'm not saying this just as a pastor. I'm saying this as a fellow church member. There have been many Sundays over the last eight years where I have struggled to even want to come, not because of you guys are horrible, but because life is hard. And then we get together and we stand and we sing these praises and we speak truths of God and then we hear from the word of God. And as we hear these things and you hear other people singing when you might not be able to and then your soul is encouraged and your, your, your heart is convicted and your spirits are lifted and your affections are reoriented and your attention is realigned. Thank you for putting out the chairs and pouring the coffee and putting up the curtains and running the slides and playing music and caring for our children. When my five-year-old Abby comes home and throws out a theological zinger that she heard on Sunday mornings, I was talking to Gatlin at our staff retreat this week, and he was going through how his son Wiley, who's almost six, is a Trinitarian theologian. There is one God and three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Five. Excuse me, five and a half, because you count those things. You know what? This week you may not feel like you need to be here. But I want to encourage you, you do. And obviously I'm preaching to those who are here. When you're suffering, when you're angry, when you're hurting, when you're sick, when you're downtrodden, when you failed, we are tempted to run from the Lord. I am. But He invites us together. He invites us out of darkness into the light. He invites us to love each other. He invites us to bear with each other. Because love does cover a multitude of sins. Serving is not only a good thing, it is a God thing. Why? Well, verse 11, we'll land the plane here. Why is it a God thing? In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever ongoing Amen. Why? Why do we serve? Why do we speak the word? Why do we bear with each other in love? Why do we forgive? Why do we release? Why do we persevere and struggle through suffering and persecution? Why? So that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Are you struggling? Are you suffering? Are you facing persecution or disappointment or depression or trauma? Are you hurting in that way? Then I want to realign our thinking and close in a form of doxology with Philippians 3, 7 through 11. The apostle Paul, who persecuted Christians, was saved by Jesus, was developed and sent as a missionary, put a realignment in our persecution, in our suffering, that we might suffer well. This is a passage I revisit often to remember my King Jesus and the hope that we have. And I want this to be an encouragement for you as we prepare our hearts and minds to remember the Lord through the Lord's Supper. Philippians 3, verse 7 through 11, he began by sharing his resume. And he picks up here, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing him is the best prize. It's the most life-giving, life-changing, life-sustaining. Even when we're not feeling it, even when that thought feels painful, even when it feels like a thick penicillin shot. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as 
scuba rubbish dung in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Church, are we all in? Is that our hope and our aspiration? Is that the lens by which we struggle and we suffer and we endure and we love? Oh, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share that I might share in his sufferings. Sharing in his sufferings isn't just going out looking for it. Sometimes we share in suffering because we cause it. But the way that we deal with our suffering and our pain is to trust the Lord is refining us for more of Him. And more of Him is what your tired soul needs. If you're here this morning and you've never hoped in Jesus Christ, to be your source of life and forgiveness and hope and love, if you've never trusted in Him, His life, His death, His resurrection, then this idea of enduring persecution or suffering is impossible. But that invitation for you to turn to Him, to trust in Him, to hope in Him, to experience the everlasting eternal love of God, is available to you today to cry out to him and say, God, I need you. Jesus, forgive me. Rescue me. Save me. He will. He's doing it. Respond to him. But as followers of Jesus, we also need to come back and realign around the fact that our life isn't live just to pursue comfort and avoid suffering. It's to stand up for what Christ calls us to, even in love to call what is true, true, to stand up to what are lies, and then to hope in Christ as we endure. Why? So that we might know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. As I said when we began, the main point is the will of God is for followers of Jesus to have the mind and attitudes of Christ even in the face of persecution and our suffering, that we might point to Him and glorify Him. Let's pray together.